woke up in the morning and you're very glad that you got through another night. At any moment, at, at any given moment during that day, you could step on a mine, you could step on a booby trap, you could be shot or wounded from any point, at any angle, at any time. And you can know that the death or the wounding could be the most terrible thing you see, or the, one of the most terrible things that you could feel or experience, because you've seen it in other men. And you just hoped the hell it wasn't going to be you, so you did the best to be as, as um, switched on as you could be. There I was lying in the mud in the middle of, of this horrendous ambush with machine guns everywhere and rocket propelled grenades going off all around us. It's the first time I began to realise that the soldier was worth nothing. The soldier was the lowest common denominator that there was. You were just fodder for the machine, whether it be for the government or the military, you were just there to be used, to use up the armaments, use up the bullets, use up the rockets and so forth, and you as a human being ceased to exist. Don Tate is a war veteran who served as a rifleman during the Vietnam War in 1968. This week on The Risk Equation, we explore Don's incredible journey and where he is now, almost 50 years later. Before we start this week's episode, it's important to note that it does include mature themes and has sounds and moments that may be considered confronting. We're cognizant of this, but we've made it our focus to oblige by Don's wishes and ensure that his story is told with accuracy and the respect that it deserves. get off that plane and be hit by the heat and the smell and the stink of the place and as far as you could see there were nothing but planes, jets and helicopters and bombers, all sorts of planes in every direction. I did three weeks of acclimatising in the uh, reinforcement unit and from there I was posted to the 4th Battalion and then it changed dramatically because while you're in the reinforcement unit where you're still going about doing soldierly things and you know going on small patrols and so forth and learning on the job if you like when you actually get in that chopper to go out to join a battalion which is currently on operations and you're in that chopper looking down at the ground below you watching the jungle whiz by and you're sitting on a box of um, ammunition you think to yourself man well this is it there's no turning back now I'm in this now, like there's no getting out of it, no running away, you've got to go through with this. So it was just a, uh, you know, it was a, oh, I don't know how I say it, it was um, quite a revelation because up to that point it was sort of, sort of fun and games. And now I'm in a real war and now I can get killed. You get to the ground and uh, you write in your book about how uh, a company sergeant major kicks you off to the side and that's your first greeting of the uh, of 4RAR and uh, you're told to sort of jump down with the others into the appropriate place and you push on into 12th platoon and you're allocated to that uh, group and you're replacing men that have died and you're coming into a platoon that's had 
pre-deployment operations together, deployment operations together, and now you're there where their mates used to be. What was that like psychologically for a young man coming into that experience for the first time? Well, you have to understand that you're a newcomer and you're also an outsider because these blokes had trained together for, for probably a year or so before they went to Vietnam. Then they socialised together, they knew each other well, they knew each other's families. And suddenly there's a brand new bloke in amongst them. They don't know what he's like. They don't know how he's going to react he's, because he's never trained with them. And you also know that they know that you're replacing one of their mates who's already been shot or wounded or whatever. And you're in the, the new bloke in the new bed when you're finding it back into base. So you have to prove yourself to them. You go out on a patrol and you describe this in your book as being sort of a turning point in your relationship with the platoon uh, when you're put right at the back. Tell me that story and about how that impacted on your relationship with the platoon afterwards. But could you step us through that engagement? All you do is tail and Charlie is keep an eye out in case of an attack from the rear. And at one point I did notice and what I saw was shadowy characters or figures behind me. Well, I stopped probably three times. The dilemma that I was in was, here I am, the brand new boy in the platoon, been there for one day, and suddenly I'm seeing Viet Cong soldiers behind me. Third time, I went down on one knee, hopped behind a tree, went down on one knee, and I aimed at the group of Viet Cong. And I didn't fire at any particular Viet Cong, I just fired in their direction and then fired in a, um, a whole magazine of, of bullets just firing left to right and left to right. At that point, they split up. One went to the left of us and one group went to the right of us. There's probably only half a dozen or so in, in the two groups. And at that point, the group that went to the right were then fired upon by our machine gunner as a contact to the, to the right, and he cleaned them up. And uh, my part was done, but I remember the section commander or the section 2IC, I can't really recall which one it was, coming back down to me and just saying, mate, well done. And first of all, they were, what the hell are you firing at? And I had to explain what had happened. But at the same time, the, the contact to right opened up. So that was where the focus went. But afterwards, they came back to me and we sorted out what had actually happened. And they were pretty wrapped in about the fact that I had actually stopped a, an attack from the rear, which was a, as I stand it, as I understand it now, a common occurrence in Vietnam to be attacked from the rear as well as everywhere else. So. For those people who don't know, when you start firing on enemy from a platoon position, that sends off an automatic drill for the platoon to respond. Everyone then knows that there's a threat. Everyone responds in an automated way and communication starts flowing in order to coordinate a response. And so that action, that simple action of simply firing off rounds in the direction of the enemy, almost certainly saved lives that day. You talk about the 
uh, in your book about the solitude of the soldiers at the time, that I think a lot of us, when we think about conflict, we think about the camaraderie that comes with working in those sorts of units under those stresses. But it was interesting to me reading your book that you say in, in many cases the opposite was in fact true, that people didn't want to get too close because of the potential to lose people so easily and randomly in that conflict. And I was just interested in, in how you approached that as a young man in Vietnam when you're dealing with these sorts of stresses every day, but at the same time, everyone is a bit shut down, really. No one's building deep relationships as a protective mechanism. You know, I never actually considered what war was really all going to be all about until I actually got there. But the thing was, what really struck me was that I was sort of um, isolated from the way the rest of the blokes felt. Some of those blokes, we went back to the company position and were sobbing quietly. Um, very sombre. To me, it didn't matter because I didn't know that bloke or any of those, either of those two men. So I just went about my ordinary business. It didn't affect me like it did so many other men. I don't know whether I was able to compartmentalise it right from the very start as a consequence of my own growing up in Brisbane, the, the rough background that I had, or whether it was just luck of the draw that I was one of those people who was able to just put things into perspective. We, we lived a very tough life. We, uh, a family of eight, living in a, a rectangular shell, basically out of Allen Grove, a suburb of Brisbane. You probably know um, it's Allen Grove. Go along, have a look at, drive along Bagnell Street, 107 Bagnell Street, and have a look around you. And remember, this was the day where there were no roads, no electricity, no gas, no water, no telephone, no communication of any sort. Laying in heat and humidity with mosquitoes all over you and having no fresh air in the room. And all we had was the old bush lamps. We had a concrete floor. We had a, a, a fibro surrounds, no insulation on the roof. We slept on the floor in one mattress, my brother, three of my brothers, myself. We'd walk to school, five k's to school, or 10 k's to school, whatever it was now, I can't remember, but eight, eight k's I think it is now. Uh, no shoes on our feet. And we worked on that land. We chopped trees down and we chopped stumps out. We burnt them out. We learned to use uh, hoes and axes and crosscut saws and that type of stuff. These are things that build muscle in the young men, which you, today young men go to the gym and they come out full of muscle, but they haven't got the strength to chop a tree down. Tough growing up, but I think it made, it made you tough. It's one of those situations where it's it's you know horrible being there, but you look back on it, and you can see the value in the way that it, it formed your character. strikes me that there was really nothing that you wouldn't have been able to face after going through what you did at that young age. There, there's almost no struggle that would have been too hard for you at that point in time. When you were patrolling uh, in Vietnam, 
I think many people who haven't done any sort of infantry training wouldn't realize how uh, solitary that actually is. You're walking in silence to begin with, and then you're having to remain constantly vigilant at all times, not just in a, uh, a superficial way, but in a way that literally could be the difference between you living and dying. That sort of psychological weight that has to be carried around at all times, while also keeping yourself going day to day just physically, is to me an enormous burden that is difficult for anyone to truly comprehend unless they'd been under those circumstances. And I just wanted to ask you on reflection now, what do you think it was that carried you through those nine months on those long patrols and with that uncertainty? Was it something intrinsic to you? Was it techniques that you put in place? Or was it just you were there, you had to do it, and so you just punched on? The thing was, you woke up in the morning and you were very glad that you got through another night. But then you knew they had a day ahead of you and you didn't know if you'd see another dusk that night. At any moment, and at any given moment during that day, you could step on a mine, you could step on a booby trap, you could be shot or wounded from any point at any angle at any time without warning. And you can know that the death or the wounding could be the most terrible thing you see or the, one of the most terrible things that you could feel or experience because you've seen it in other men. You just hoped the hell it wasn't going to be you, so you did the best to be as, as um, switched on as you could be. But always, you're right, never ever without that pressure of, of knowing that you could be killed or shot at any given moment. Even when you're asleep, you're trusting other men then to keep guard of the night. And sometimes men fell asleep on duty. And there were many times when men died during the night when, that, when men did sleep uh, or sleep on picket duty. So there was never a period of time when you had any peace of mind. How did you cope with that? How did you get through each day in that way? Because to me, that sounds almost an impossible psychological feat. I don't think it can all be put down necessarily just to the army told me to be here, so I have to be here. Like there's, there's plenty of examples of people who have found ways to, to get out of conflict or to be relocated or whatever it happens to be, but to keep fronting up, to keep doing the job, even despite everything. What was it that, that kept you there, that kept you doing that, that kept you fronting up for those guys around you? I was not the most efficient soldier or competent soldier, I have to say, and I you know, made that, that point in my book. I was actually quite a naive young man going to Vietnam. In fact, the army actually takes the most naive men to, into the army and into war because we don't think too much. There was quite an emphasis on looking after each other and making sure that no one let the, the squad down and let any other man down. That was uh, the key thing, I think, was making sure that no one let the machine down.
when you're in that environment all the time, it, it must show up people's character and personalities in a way that nothing else really does because you're really seeing people at their best and at their worst under the constant threat of potential death, being asked to go out and kill enemy soldiers or really anyone that's causing a threat or a problem in the engagement area. And I'm just interested in the people who you admired when you were on deployment there, when you were going through those experiences. Who were the people who stood out to you that said, those are characteristics that I as a young man want to emulate, either within the war or outside of it? Well, my first section commander, Tom Douglas, uh, he was the, the epitome of the, the best soldier that I think I had ever seen up to a certain point. Tough, rugged, knew how to operate, and you felt quite safe under his command. And later on, I met a man called Corporal Jim Riddle, a former Marine soldier from Britain, and I was under his command for about four weeks, even though he was only a corporal. They were both tough, rugged individuals who made sure they looked after you. One regarded him as a mother hen, if you like, of his little chicks. Mm. I remember you talking about Corporal Douglas in your book and uh, one of the things that I, I, a quote that just sticks out to me is, and I'm not sure if this was word for word or just a recollection of the general gist that he gave you at the time, but he wrote down that he said that my job in this conflict is to keep you safe and then to kill as many enemies as we can in that order and that regardless of what anyone else tells you, that's the order that I care about and you should care about too. And that quote struck me as an amazing uh beginning to a leadership relationship with somebody to say that fundamentally my interest is in looking after you and in doing that we'll look after each other and then we'll get the job done if we can. When Corporal Douglas was working through the long days, sort of weeks and months with this group of guys, what are some of the things that he would do that stood out to you to try and keep the unit cohesive that, that made you feel looked after, that made you feel trusted? How, how did he approach that situation in these circumstances? In my period of time in Vietnam, I had different, I had four different units and Tom Douglas was only a small section of it. So I went to another unit to another unit and met different people. And I never felt really that any one group, whether it be Tom Douglas or any other person, really was all that concerned with me after all. It was really about, you know, um, it was just you got by the best you could individually, not yeah. relying on Tom Douglas or Corporal Jim Riddle or anybody else. And that's in the end, it was all up to you. At this point in the story, you've been serving for more than eight months, working with the men you mentioned and within some of the worst possible conditions. But now, if you could, I'd want you to take us back to that moment in July 19, 1968, when you encountered a Viet Cong ambush and where you faced probably the most defining moment of your life to that point. We had uh, killed a, a Viet Cong uh, soldier on about lunchtime on a riverbed or creek bed, but one had got away and left blood trails. I was the scout of the second section, and usually after you have a contact, the sections rotate. In this, on this occasion, though, the uh, section commander of the leading section said, no, we'll, we'll stay out in front. And I was happy with that. Off we went, 
And uh, as we were going up the mountain with this uh, hill, pretty high hill, uh, a massive monsoon storm struck. We eventually had to climb our way, dragging ourselves through the mud to get up to this damn hill, knowing full well that we were going to walk into an ambush because only a fool wouldn't have known that there was an ambush waiting for us when we were following blood trails. Now, I didn't know what this bit about it at the time, but ahead of me, in the first section, the section commander and the scout had rotated positions because the forward scout was a bit worried. He thought he was walking into an ambush and he was right. So those two swapped positions. And when the Vietcong opened their ambush up, they shot the second man in the section, which happened to be the poor old scout, who had vacated the opening position. So most of those blokes in that first section were wounded or dead when the, the ambush erupted. Now my second section was slightly down the rise at that point and the platoon commander, Bruce Osborne, ordered the gun crew up ahead to provide covering fire for that first section that was under intense fire. And I went with them because I just figured that was my job, to go with the gun crew. The three of us breasted the crest of this hill and it was clawed our way through the mud, knowing full well that we were walking into a fusillade of enemy machine gun fire and knew that the minute we stood up, we were either going to be killed or wounded. But you didn't have any say in the matter because you were an infantry private, all three of us, and we were ordered up that, up that hill and that's what we had to do. But we knew as soon as we stood up and started to run, there was a very good chance that we'd be killed. Gunner moved out to the right, his number two went to follow him. He went down in the mud, I went past him. I lay down, stopped and turned just in time to see him cop it. He got one bullet in the chest. Then I watched as his fingers disintegrated above him. I then stood up. I carried a little pineapple grenade with me that had been given to me by a forearm member and threw it in a rough direction of Blunkers to fire it first. And then I went to dive, and as I went to dive, the bullet struck me in the side of the hip and sent me cartwheeling through the jungle about two or three times like that and I lost my rifle. There I was lying in the mud in the middle of, of this horrendous ambush with machine guns everywhere and rocket propelled grenades going off all around us. And you can't describe the noises. The, the cacophony is so severe that you, initially only men who've experienced it can understand or appreciate it. The platoon commander had actually stopped many men from coming forward. He figured that they'd already lost a section of men up the front, then they lost the next three of us that went up as well, or two of the three of us had been wounded. So there must be some sort of halt in stopping them, but the blokes in the back decided they'd have to, you know, it was just a natural part of the job, was the medics had to get up to the front to get the wounded blokes out.
I fully expected that Mick Davidson would come along because he was the sort of man that you knew would come up there eventually. Him and a bloke called Mick Shave. Mick Shave was probably our best soldier in the platoon. But Mick Davidson, he came up and he got to me and I was laying there at that point with my, on my back. I had my, my webbing was gone, I pulled my trousers out to see what the damage was and I just, uh, I was horrified to see this foot-long sausage of minced bone and meat and muscle and tissue hanging from the wound and I, I brushed it away and I put a handful of mud in the hole. Then Mick came up to me and he, he crawled up to me and he said, Tady, he said, Tady, what the hell have I done to you, mate? And then he started to drag me back, but he couldn't lift me up because the, the bullets were probably at knee height all the way through that whole area and still under severe fire and the ambush was still going off all around us. But he began to drag me back and firing over the top of my legs as he was pulling me back to a safer position as we got down back over that little rise. And um, he was then joined by a bloke called Peter Bunn. Uh, he was also a medic. And Bunny carried me the rest of the way down the slope down to amongst all the rest of the other wounded men. I notice, well, in your book, you're extremely generous with how you give recognition to people who did incredible things that you witnessed in that time. And I'm grateful for that because I'm so aware, uh, even with my very meager military background in comparison, just how many amazing people don't get recognition by an organization like the army and, and as big as the army, it's the same in government, it's the same everywhere, but small acts of incredible courage are, are all around us at all times. And the one that stands out to me at this moment is Mick Davidson, who was a stretcher bearer who carried you out of that, that zone. And as you describe that situation in the monsoon with the cacophony of noise of the machine gun fire and the grenades going off and a platoon trying to regain control of an ambush situation, can you just talk a little bit about what Mick did to get you out of there? We were all wounded in, this, in the killing field area, but he had come up over the rise, still come forward 15 or 20 metres to get to me, and I was the, the second furthest on. Private John Walker was behind me with his wounds, so he was probably picked up first, as far as I know. Then I was the second one. So about yeah. 20 metres, but still 20 metres when you're running at machine gun fire is a lot. It's, it's, it's an eternity. The, the physical strength required and the soldiering technique and the courage required to move forward into an ambush zone or a killing zone, um, while knee-high machine gun fire is going on and then drag someone back and then to return fire at the same time I, I make a big deal about this I suppose because you, you make it a special note in your book that he was never given any recognition for those actions and then beyond that the man who carried you away from the battlefield and attended to your wounds Peter Bunn was also not recognised for his work and subsequently when he returned home to Australia after surviving his entire deployment in the Vietnam War he was killed as a young man in a traffic accident I think it's worth recognising people like that when there's no official means to do so other. He, uh, he bought a car on his first day back from a sailor, a second-hand car, and it was uh, pretty dodgy. He got killed on the roadside on the uh, turns coming down from uh, Woodside to Adelaide. 
when you were struck by that bullet, you've essentially gotten to a point where you can't continue as a fighting force anymore. And so you're heading home. And I'm just interested in that dramatic change in, in how this was all affecting you and your psychology as you realised you were going to be out of there. What was going through your mind at that moment? Uh, how, you, how did you process that over the, coming, over the following days? I just was thinking about all the things I'd seen. It just sort of flashed through my mind, all the things I'd been involved in and seen in that last eight, eight or so months. And I was so very, very glad that I was out of it. And I thought, if I could just land in, in that in Bunktail, that the war was over for me. woke up in hospital and they were jumping, nurses and doctors were clutching each other and kissing and hugging and carrying on. And I said, what's, what's going on? They said, we're landing on the moon. Forward, forward, 20 feet down, two and a half, picking up some dust, straight shadow, four forward, drifting to the right a little, 30 seconds. Forward. I think it was the first time I began to realise that the soldier was worth nothing. The soldier was the lowest common denominator that there was. You were just fodder for the machine, whether it be for the government or the military, you were just there to be used, to use up the armaments, use up the bullets, use up the rockets and so forth, and you as a human being ceased to exist. Man was embarked on greater adventures than the war itself, and you as individual were involved in your little world, but there was a greater world out there that we weren't part of. Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. From now on, for what uh, will be uh, truly a historic time in the life of our country and in the existence of mankind. It was incomprehensible to me that we could be crawling around in the mud, killing each other on the one end of the technological scale and landing on the moon on the other. p.m. Sunday, the moment that Armstrong's foot first touched the moon. Uh, like a major firefight is Holly Branch, symbolically at least, two MPs have gone into the embassy and are trying to get the sniper. Uh, the president of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you, over. Because of what you have done for one priceless moment, in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. Into the embassy and are trying to get the snipers out by themselves.
having been shot in the hip, seriously injured, and you've just been crawling around, as you say, in the mud, fighting the most extreme guerrilla war campaign uh, in modern recorded history. And at the same time, we're landing people for the first time on another solar body. We had no idea that was even happening. We were so divorced from reality. I was struck when I read your story the first time around. I think one of the reasons why it stayed with me um, so strongly was because of the nature of your wound and the nature of your recovery. Because my grandfather was an orthopedic surgeon in Vietnam. Um, he deployed there with the PA from the PA hospital as a civilian. He'd been in the army during World War II, was training to uh, fly, uh, but had never deployed during World War II. Um, but then later had, as a civilian, uh, joined a military team as a surgeon to go over and he uh, operated in Vietnam for four and a half months before coming home again. And it turned out that his, his, he was in Vietnam at the same time as you, but he wasn't there when you were wounded. But he did talk a lot about the facilities and, and the way in which things were managed from an Australian medical point of view and from an orthopedic point of view and a trauma point of view. And so I have, I guess, a, a unique insight perhaps into the system that you were walking into or coming into after that point in time and the recovery that emerged from it. So when I got back to Australia, and I was very sick by then, very ill, high temperature, in a fairly severe way. And there was a note made, I think the very first day, my hospital record says, watch this lad closely, his wound is of the type that's prone to chronic infection. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't for about 11 days that they did a swab of the wound, and by which time the wound was severely infected with multiple infections. And I think it was about 16 days or so before they actually x-rayed it. And then they found the damage that was done. So the initial initial diagnosis of, being, of the ricochet adversely affected the recovery period. For the next um, six months, I think it was, they tried to get the infection under control, but they couldn't. So I was forced to walk on crutches, to sit on a toilet with a, with a, with a hip that kept um, disintegrating. And so at one point, my hip was, my right leg was probably about three or four inches shorter than my right leg which should have been obvious to medical people, but they didn't seem to notice that. And then there came a time when they did x-ray it properly and they did find that this, the, they did know that it was fully infected and they decided that the best thing to do then would be to put me into traction. So they put me into traction for about another five months on my back in there for five months or so. And finally they realised that they probably, they, they, I think they thought they'd probably finally got rid of the infection. But then they had a hip that was badly broken and there was no hip transplant, not that they could have done a hip transplant in those days, um, but they then thought the only wall they could do was put a pin through it, make it all solid and give me what they called an arthrodesis and that required then, it was a massive operation, went for about 12 or 13 hours, uh, I understand I died on the table during that period, mm. to wake up suffocated by this massive thing around my chest, this massive plaster cast flat on my back, unable to move in any direction. And well, luckily by then I had a, my wife-to-be was with me and uh, she basically kept me alive during that period and probably has for the last 50 years since then. But because she was vomiting, because she had just been through the severe operation, you couldn't pro- properly vomit because it was running back down your throat because you couldn't move your head. You felt that you were being suffocated by this weight. 
But eventually you get through those first few days, but you're still in this plaster cast where you can't move and you have got to get somehow use a bedpan, have to be shoved underneath this massive big bloke with a big, uh, this plaster cast on. All sorts of physical problems like trying to urinate, trying to defecate. Uh, you find you're getting out of bed with crutches on and finding you've got crap running down your legs and you know, the, the inside, it, it, was a, it was just uh, monstrous in the Queensland heat because in those days they used to wrap you up in thick cotton wool first before they put the plaster mm. on, which itched you terribly in, the, in that Queensland heat. So you'd get pieces of wire, coat hangers, you'd, you'd shove them down all around you, your, uh, the plaster cast to try and stop the itch, but you couldn't stop that. And my wife, or she'd pour um, aftershave and that sort of thing down me to stop the stench because you had sores in there, you had dry blood in there, you had, you know, uh, crap, or crap on you. And the plaster cast was only changed, I think, maybe once every four to six weeks or so. So it was a long time to put up with that thing, month after month after month. I feel like in the reading that I've I've done of your work, um, you strike me as a, a remarkably understated man when it comes to yourself. And I think that I just want to recognise at the moment that the nine and a half months of Vietnam and the experience of that that we've already described in some detail was then followed by an almost two-year period of some of the most traumatic recovery anyone could ever experience. And this is in the prime of your life. This is the time when you're meant to be out enjoying yourself, when you're meant to be able to go and make something of yourself as a young man and, and take advantage of all of your health and, and well-being and your potential. And a lot of that has just been stolen and taken away from you. And the resilience required to keep pushing, even with the supports around you at the time, after those incredibly traumatic experiences and then the recovery and the uncertainty around that recovery afterwards, is a truly... Uh, remarkable and extraordinary thing. My, my resilience might have been um, in part due to the fact I did have a rough upbringing, but my ability to get through life afterwards was basically because I had a, the, one of the best women you could get hold of. She stayed with me from day one to the to, to, to today, and she basically carried on her shoulders from the toughest women I've ever met. She didn't know what she was in for to start with, I must be honest. <laughs> to be honest, uh, you know, she met this young bride, she thought I was handsome, I thought she was beautiful. She was an extremely yeah. beautiful woman. Here she is suddenly saddled with a relationship with a bloke who's got a bullet hole in his hip. He's going to always be disabled. He had no, no employment prospects, he had no education, and yes, she still took me on. We got through the next few years very, in, in very tough style. You know, I had to get a job, I had to learn to get an education, all those things next, but she was always by my side and she basically carried me through. 
I can't. She, she was there when I woke up from that first big operation, that, the last operation I had, and she stayed by my side ever since. Once you opt to make a life together, and no matter how tough it gets, some people will say, right, let's, let's go and keep forging ahead and do this because we, we, we did make this commitment to each other. No matter how tough the going got, the tougher she got. And we, you know, she held us together because I, I did go through quite difficult times over the years with this disability, you know, just, yeah. it takes away your ego and all sorts of stuff like that. It's easy for us to forget now about just how heartbreaking uh, our history is in regards to the way the Vietnam veterans were treated when they came home and the way that the cultural movements at the time intersected with the, uh, the sacrifice of those soldiers that went over there and how that then played out. And you talk in your book a little bit about how when you confronted, how you confronted a crowd uh, when you came back during your recovery uh, in a really quite dramatic uh, way. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? Because I think many people living in Brisbane and perhaps around Australia would find it difficult to imagine this scenario in today's day and age, but this was real life in, in Brisbane back then. May 1970, it was a big moratorium marches all around Australia. And I didn't know, I didn't, wasn't following newspapers at the time. I just happened to go into Brisbane on a day off from the hospital. They gave me a day leave, get out of the hospital, go into town, you know, just spend the day in there. So I did, I had a, a sort of a nappy on my hip and as, dressed as well as I could with crutches and so forth. So I'm standing in a pub in the uh, middle of Queen Street in Brisbane and I hear this terrible chanting coming down the street and thousands of people up, lined up and down the streets. I went out to see what was going on. I was actually horrified to see this damn marching thousands of people, males and females and young girls in miniskirts picking up money for the Viet Cong, all coming down the street. And I just I was enraged by the fact that while we were fighting a war and while men were still dying and fighting in Vietnam, that these, these people would, would come and protest against those people up there and the men still up there dying and fighting in Vietnam. And I just waded into it with my crutches. I punched anyone I could get my hands on, well, only blokes. They would knock me to the ground. The cops would rush in, they'd pick me up, drag me back out. Then a few ranks go by and they say, go on, off you go again. So I was then back into him again, I get knocked down again. And so this went on and on and on for quite a while. And eventually I, got, I was pretty knocked around and, you know, took myself back to hospital a couple of hours later, pretty knocked around. Of course, the hospital authorities went off the head about, you know, what, I, what I'd been up to. It didn't made all the papers of the day. And You got up on the stage though, didn't you, Don, as well at that time? Didn't you get in front of the crowd as well and give them a piece of your mind? Yeah, local Senator O'Keefe was running the show up in Brisbane. About 5,000 people were in, I think it was the King, King George Square or something up there. I'm not certain the name of the place, but a big... Anyway, I forced myself, a bit like Forrest Gump in the movie, forced myself up to the podium, yeah. up to the microphones, and I gave him a piece of my mind. I said, you bastards don't know what it's all about. Mm -hmm. I said, the Allies are right. I still remember what I said. I said, the Allies are right to be in Vietnam. You mm -hmm. bastards don't know what, what, what it's all about. Those sort of things. And, of course told to get lost, you crippled by so-and-so, and jeered for being a veteran. And then I went back to a hospital pretty, pretty psychologically knocked around by that. I hope there are some people who can reflect on that now, years down the track, and, and realise the damage that they were doing to people. And I think that it would be almost impossible some, 
in some ways for uh, my generation growing up now in the way that the Anzac tradition is celebrated and the way that we think about soldiers and the the value that we place in their contribution regardless of the politics of the day. Um, I don't know if that will always be true, but I think at the moment it largely is. But it's interesting to me to think that this is the, the same country that only sort of 50 years earlier had been so grateful for the contribution of Anzacs at Gallipoli that Banjo Patterson uh, wrote a poem dedicated to them, which was then delivered on behalf of the Australian people to soldiers on the beach. And then 50 years later after this conflict, to have people in the middle of Brisbane shouting you down, a wounded veteran who's literally just come back from sacrificing for his country, is just such an incredible contrast in national sentiment. Uh, And I think it's something that many of us are still ashamed about today um, and we hope never repeats itself regardless of the politics involved in any conflict. When you've gotten through that recovery, and I say gotten through because of course this is with you your entire life, but after you've gotten through that acute stage where you're able to be somewhat functional again, how do you choose where to go in your life from there? Because to me it's like starting from scratch, but with all of this this background baggage then to carry with you along the way, how did you determine this is what I'm going to make of my life from here on in, because that by itself seems incredible to me. Well, um, I finally got out of hospital in 1972, and I began work as a main road uh, labourer. That didn't last very long, and went through a succession of jobs, you know, rubbishy type of jobs like that, not knowing who I was or what I even wanted for many, many years. And ironically, what actually, there was a, a very significant event that took place in my life in 1977 and 1978, when I went to play cricket for a local cricket club. First of all, doctors had told me I would not never walk properly again. They said you'd never run, then they said you'd never play sport. So I went up to this uh, local cricket club and they, uh, they let me play cricket and then I found myself in first grade. Then I found myself opening the bowling in first grade. Then I found myself winning the uh, cricket of the year competition and taking the record number of wickets as a first grade bowl and suddenly it clicked that maybe I'm not as thick or as dumb or as useless as I had thought for the last uh, uh, six, five, six years. Very first game, they gave me the ball as first change bowler, and I had the disability as a hip disability, and I said, come in, rank the ball. I took seven for 25 in that very first game, and from then on, I opened the bowling from that day forth. And, uh, and I, uh, I was virtually unplayable, I reckon, down here. Team went both ways, uh, had all sorts of tricks up my sleeve, and uh, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very successful. But it, it was a real jarring thing in my brain that, hang on, I've got something here, you know. And my wife at that point had been hairdresser and had been sort of carrying us, or had been carrying us for a couple of years while I was unemployed. And we decided that I had to do something more uh, with my life than you know, just being a labourer or whatever. So I opted to go back and get my HSC and I'd become a teacher after that. Well, to be honest, I had a difficult time as a teacher because I thought that I could turn any student into being the best possible student, turning out wonderful academic results. 
And so I, would, I battled year after year after year with students and with their parents because I gave them too much work and worked them harder and so forth because I had come from such a deprived background that I thought, you kids have got a lot more than me, you should go a lot further than me. So I really did bust my tail with these kids. But it was counterproductive because all the you know, teachers get a hard time from students most of the time, let alone one who wants to work their tails off. I think that the other contribution that you made, uh, which I feel like we will only really recognize the value of in the years to come, was the fact that you took a video camera to Vietnam with you as a private infantry soldier. And I remember reading that and seeing some of the footage that you took and just thinking how sort of amazing it was uh, and unlikely it was that at that time that you, of all people, coming from Brisbane and, and where you did, would have a Super 8 camera with them uh, in the middle of infantry operations in Vietnam. You know what I mean? Like that, that by itself sort of sounds a bit ridiculous when you hear it. And yet we, we are the beneficiaries of incredible color footage of your patrols, of you, of people you were with, um, and the conflict that we just wouldn't, wouldn't have in the Australian War Memorial and, and our record if, if you didn't take it. And how did it come that you took a camera with you almost uh, tourist style uh, when you went to Vietnam and, and tell us about capturing that footage and the reaction of people around you and how you did it. Well, I said I was naive and I had a little movie, uh, the Super 8 movie camera as a boy and I used to take you know, home movies of the kids at home. And when I went to Vietnam, I didn't see any reason why I shouldn't take it. And when I went out in operations, no one said to me, you can't take it. So once a week when we got our resupplies, I'd throw away a day's rations and, and, and have the camera. But I didn't compromise through security any time. I, I always did it with the full knowledge of the men of my platoon and the, uh, the officer platoon commander. But I've met many men since who just said, oh, I wish I had done something like that. But here I was, this naive young bloke from Brisbane, from the bush of Brisbane, with a movie camera, a colour movie camera. And you're right, it's a, such a valuable resource now, especially for the families of those men, because some of them have died, or most, a lot of them have died by now, but their grandkids can see those, the images of their, of their father or their grandfather as he was in the war. 